Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Everyone, thank you so much for being here. We're so happy to see you. Julie is at her son's Eagle Scout ceremony tonight, and we are thrilled to welcome Valentina Woodson as our co-host. Valentina is a writer, illustrator, graphic designer, entrepreneur, and a graduate of Georgia Southern University. She's known for her love of romance, her crystal store, and she's writing a screenplay while raising a supervillain. Welcome, Valentina. Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to be here today. I have been working with Jessica and Julie for a few months now, and they are the most amazing bosses ever. Because so. <laughs> we like you. <laughs> happy to be here. Um, so I just want to go ahead and welcome uh, the agent, Haley Casey. Yay, uh, Haley. Haley graduated from the University of Kansas in 2015 with a BA in creative writing. And that fall, she attended the Denver Publishing Institute. She began her full-time career at Ogden Publications, where she was an editor for four years. There, she worked with a variety of authors across multiple magazines, wrote over a dozen articles, edited audio for podcasts, and even styled cover photos, anything to add some creativity to her days. In 2020, she interned at Metamorphosis, literary agency and creative media agency, before stepping into her role as a junior agent at CMA. She also manages the digital arm of the company. For as long as she can remember, Haley has defined herself by her love of reading. She's actively building her list, is ready to bring new stories into the world, and is looking forward to helping her authors achieve their publishing goals. Welcome, Haley. Yay! And even if we can't hear you, clapping is very welcome. Yay! Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yay. Thank you so much. Haley, we're just so happy that you're here. So thank you. Thank you. So Haley, you've seen both sides of the desk as an editor and as an agent. Can you talk a little bit about how they're the same and how they're different? Yes. Um, So they're already a little bit different because I was an editor for a magazine publishing company and not a book publishing company. So when I worked, it was on individual articles and typically they were assigned just to me. I didn't get to pick what I worked on. So already that was like a, a huge difference. And one of the things that drew me to agenting was that I get to work just on projects that I've really fallen in love with and that I'm really excited to see over and over and over again as I work. But the biggest thing is I like to be a little bit of an editorial agent. So I never want to do so much that an author might have to redo all of their work when it gets to an editor but I want to do enough that we're drawing out that central message in a way that's polished and really accessible to readers so that when people see it for the first time, it's really easy to engage with. It's hard to get that balance, huh? Oh, definitely. <laughs> and also not step on the writer's toes. And it's one of the things I learned as an editor was sort of how to stop from inserting myself in because I get excited and I have all these ideas and it's not I mean, I help it, but it's not my book. It's the author's book. So I still have to like take a step back and be like, if that's not what they want to do, we're going to try something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's always such an important thing to remember the author's vision too. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So Haley, what are some upcoming projects you're excited about? So I have a few different things 
in the mix. I only have one book that we're actively working on getting ready to go out to editors right now. And I am so pumped about it. It's actually something I read as an intern for Paige over the summer. And uh, I work with Paige Wheeler. She's been in the industry for a long time. She's now sort of my mentor, the founder of the company that I work for. And uh, it needs just a little bit more editing than she had time to take on because she has so many other clients doing so many different things. And I read it and I loved it. I wrote this whole positive report about it. um, And she ended up not taking it on. So when I became an agent, one of the first things I did was reach out to her and say like, hey, do you mind if I like go snag this for myself? And she didn't. And luckily, the author hadn't found another representation yet. So I was able to have a really great conversation with her. And I'm so excited to work with her in the future. But it's this beautiful sort of book club women's fiction, magical Mm. realism story. And it's got elements of talking about gender bias and sort of loneliness. And when you get to a certain stage as a young adult, how weird it can feel if you don't have your life together, but everybody else seems to be moving on. And just sort of these little traumas and injustices that people, especially like women or minorities might find throughout their day and the way those things can weigh on you. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be beautiful when it comes out. So I'm super pumped about that. But otherwise, I just have some other things I'm sort of waiting for in the pipeline, some authors I'd like to work with, some revise and resubmits that I've sent in that I'm really excited to get back and see what happened. So awesome. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I I really want to hear more about this book later. I know, right? (laughs) Will you let Um, us know when it's um, something you can announce? I definitely will. Yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah, because I want to know all about it. Good. I'll hit you up. Awesome. So awesome. So tell us about you. What do you do when you're not working? So these questions always make me sound kind of boring. You're not boring. I'm so introverted that I just want to like be home by myself all the time. So most of my things are very like solo activities. So I'm still definitely a reader and a little bit of a writer, even though it's harder to find the time to read now that I have manuscripts I'm supposed to be paying attention to. But that's still one of my favorite things. And I also have gotten really into gardening the last mm-hmm. couple of years. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to be better about it. Sometimes I forget how much attention the plants need. So some do better than others. But I am also, it's college basketball season. I'm a really big KU basketball fan. So I have that going for me now. And then I'm also, more excitingly, I'm trying to learn Spanish. I took it in high school and it did not stick. So I'm officially trying to do that again with whatever free time I have. No, that's a lot. And I know there's so little free time when you're starting out because, you know, you're, you have to be open to so many projects and looking for so many things. And so I'm yeah. glad you are keeping your hobbies, though. That's really important. <laughs> and don't feel bad about wanting to be at home. I am the exact same. <laughs> like everybody. <laughs> everybody. <laughs> who's a homebody is not stressed right now about being at home because we actually prefer it it's okay yes I feel that as the pandemic hits people are like I just want to go out again and I'm like you know what that's all right yeah I love not having anyone see me from the waist down ever so I can wear leggings all the time and um I love that zoom puts on makeup for me so I don't have to do it myself it's it's this is not real this is all zoom it's a new filter I'll tell you how to do it later if you want yeah please do because I have to put real real makeup on today (laughs) 
but yeah, can you tell us a little bit about like what it's like getting started and not being in New York? And and this is your first year in the industry. What a year, my goodness. Yes. Yeah, that's been that's been interesting. And it's so it's so weird starting out because part of me is well, all of me. I'm so elated to actually be in the industry now, but also I live in Kansas City and it's like it's a slog to not live on one of the coasts or in New York and still be able to get into publishing. Mm-hmm. They it's I think it's changing a little bit, especially now as more people are realizing that you can be remote and still do the same work, but it definitely wasn't when I got interested in it. So starting out, it's just, it's just busy. I love that I'm getting queries and so many are so exciting, but I also have like 150 queries from the last week that I still have to respond to Mm -hmm. and that never stops. And then I'm also requesting all sorts of manuscripts because everything has potential right now. And I'm sure always will, but especially now that I'm like, oh, this project, I could make this project something. So I've got a bunch of those in the inbox and it is, I feel like the work-life balance is trickier right now because I'm home and because so much what I'm doing is just reading. I can easily like spend all evening still working and be like, that's probably not the best. (laughs) That's probably need to take a step back and remember that it's still a job and it's great that I love it, but it needs to be a little bit more separated. Well, it's hard when you're working on something you love because it feels different to have, to have that line there. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're looking for in your inbox? Like what's on your manuscript wish list? Yeah. So I def- I have kind of a, a wide variety of things that I'm looking for. So in adults, I'm really interested in sort of that upmarket book club women's fiction type of area. And I love things, especially in adult that have minority voices, because I think that's getting bigger in adult, but it's always been less big in adult than it has mm. been in some younger genres. So I definitely want that. And I love big themes. So if you can't tell the one, the one project I'm like getting ready to put out has all sorts of big messages behind it. And I'm also looking for nonfiction. Um, more specifically, I like narrative and memoirs and true crimes and things that I feel like still have a really strong story behind them. And then I'm also looking for young adult, basically in every category you can think of. I'm not the best person for like deep science fiction. I don't know enough about technology and that kind of thing to really feel like I'm the right voice to help edit that and put that into the world. But fantasy, contemporary, nonfiction, dystopian, any of those I would love. And then I'm also looking for middle grade, kind of the same thing. I love fantasy, contemporary, minority voices, talking about mental health issues, disability issues, any of those, I definitely want to focus on. Nice. So. That sounds like a really fun reading list. Yeah, it is. It's a wide variety, but it keeps it interesting. Can you talk a little bit about memoirs? I know that a lot of people have had questions about what it's like to be writing and sending out memoirs right now. Um, what are you seeing in your inbox? I am. So memoirs can be really tricky because everyone can write a memoir. Everybody has some life experience that could make a really interesting book. But as an agent, you have to decide whether that is a universal enough story that people will continue to come back to it. So I just had one and it turned into a revise and resubmit 
because it's from a journalist who has really great credentials, which is important. He has a really good uh, platform to stand on and that helps in selling nonfiction. And he has some really cool stories to tell, but his theme sort of got lost along the way. And he also wanted to talk about journalism in the past four years of politics. Mm. And that's great. And I think that can stand up, but it can't focus so exclusively on that, that 10 years down the line, people will be like, well, we don't need to worry about that anymore. That time has passed. Mm -hmm. So it's this really tricky balance of telling your story and me wanting to be able to share your story and me being able to convince a publisher that there is an audience and there will continue to be an audience for that. Hi, Haley. Um, so my question is, when receiving a request from a literary agent, how long would a good time be to get back to her? Or in other words, would waiting seem unprofessional? Are you talking about how long it takes you to send the materials that have been requested? Yeah. I don't think waiting is unprofessional. It depends maybe on why you're waiting. So I've, I've had someone recently who I requested materials for, and I always ask for a full synopsis with it so I can see where the story goes, even if I don't have time to read the entire manuscript. And he emailed me back and he said he didn't have one of those ready. But it's good to know that that's something he didn't have, but would get ready and send to me when it was there. So I knew that my email didn't get lost in the shuffle. So if you can, can, if you see it in time to send a quick update about why maybe it's going to take you a little bit longer, that's, that's all we need. Otherwise, if it's a story I'm excited about, I'll wait for months. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think also there's a little bit of a feeling that um, writers feel like they have to send it the same day they get the request, right? Yes. And yes. I believe you said you got 150 queries in a week. Yeah. So <laughs> would you know exactly when someone got back to you? Like, are you starting a countdown clock? I am definitely not. I do keep <laughs> track of when I have responded to people. So I know for myself, first of all, that I did it. And then second of all, just have like a quick little log of what I said, maybe why I said it. So again, if it's a project I'm excited about and I don't see it come in, I may go back there and check and be like, when did I ask for that? But no, if you don't send it same day, I probably have another 10 manuscripts in wait right now because I'm still building my list actively. So it might take me a minute to get to your manuscript anyway. So if you send it a little bit later, it's not gonna be a big deal. Hi, thank you for doing this. Um, I was wondering if you could define kind of what upmarket fiction means because I've seen that thrown around a lot and I'm struggling to see how that is different, how that is different from just general genre fiction and what would define something as more upmarket? That is a really good question and I may have them jump in and help me. To me, something I think of upmarket as sort of a more easily accessible version of literary fiction. So I personally don't consider anything that's um, like a true rom-com or a thriller or, you know, political mystery. I don't consider any of that upmarket fiction. It's more of the, I'm trying to think of examples of books I've read lately that I would count that way. Um, Life After Life by Kate Atkinson or Anxious People by Friedrich Bachman or sort of those true contemporary books or just very slightly fantastical books that hit a really broad range of people but don't fall into 
a usual genre. Well, I think it's also a little bit subjective because we've heard of the novels that would be women's fiction if they were written by women, but because they're written by men, they're called upmarket fiction. And so if it can be that subjective, I really don't think that there's, you know, it's not like you can give it a medical test and be like, oh, you come up as upmarket. You are definitely upmarket. A hundred percent of people will know that you are objectively upmarket. Um, I don't think there's any such thing as that. I think of it as like more sophisticated sentences, slightly more internal conflicts. But I don't think that, you know, it's it's just it's somewhere between commercial and literary and where it is on that spectrum can really vary where everyone is when they decide that it's upmarket. You know, you could have highbrow sentences, lowbrow content, and it could be upmarket. You could have highbrow sentences, middlebrow content, highbrow, highbrow. You know, it really Mm -hmm. just varies. It depends how fast the plot moves, how much of it's, again, internal, external. I think it's, I really don't think there's anything you can do to quantify it. Maybe someday they'll make a robot you can put your book into and it'll tell you the genre, but we're not there yet. (laughs) Do you all want that robot? I want that robot. (laughs) <laughs> I, want that, I want that robot. Like right now, I want that robot. I almost don't. I want to feel like there's more art to it than that. Um, well, I feel like the art is in the making of the story. You know what I mean? Yeah. But sometimes I feel like you're so deep into the story that when it comes time to actually do the, the you know, publishing side of things and trying to figure out, okay, I made this thing. What is it? <laughs> I think that's true. And I think it makes it easier to sell as an agent, too. If you can define the genre, it's a lot easier to pitch to editors and say, okay, this is what I have. These are some other books on the market that I can comp to it. Done. And if you come in with something nebulous, it's actually a little harder to sell, I think. Yeah. Publishing likes things that fit in a box, Mm -hmm. a genre box, not a, um, you know, we've seen this plot 50 times box. (laughs) Right. Just one quick follow-up to that. Then if I'm querying, should I be saying that's not that mine is more could be more upmarket based on whether or not the comps that I'm using would be considered upmarket or are considered upmarket or should I just leave that out of the query letter altogether I mean if you're using upmarket comps I think it's safe to call it upmarket it's also kind of an umbrella term you know mm-hmm. I think it's pretty rare that someone would be like no you're wrong this is definitely commercial because they can't really tell until they read it yeah no I agree yeah and your comps are going to tell me maybe more I've had authors who aren't don't call their book the genre in the query that maybe I would call it. And in that case, comps really help. They're kind of hard to come by, hard to think of, but it's actually really valuable as an agent to see those and be like, okay, this is where they see it fitting on the shelf versus this is the genre term they're able to find. We also had an interview with Rebecca Raskin recently. She's an editor at Harper. And we specifically asked her if someone completely gets the genre wrong in the pitch, do you care? And she's like, no. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We care if it's a good book because we can very easily call it something else when we pitch it. Agreed. Sita, do you want to ask your question? So when are you expecting to see the inciting incident in art market art fiction or in um, women's uh, commercial fiction, either by the page or I'm, I'm more looking for to sort of answer like in proportion. So yeah, that that's fair. I still don't think the inciting incident should happen too late in an upmarket or um, a women's fiction book. Um, Like Jessica was saying, they are definitely a little more internal. So the inciting incident may be something that isn't. But yeah, it's it's how readers are going to really stay invested. So we want character introduction and scene setting, but we really want to feel like the plot is moving. In my opinion, only a few chapters in. I typically... 
ask for the first three or five chapters of a book before I ask for the whole manuscript. And if I don't see the plot moving in those three or five chapters, it's a lot harder to want to see more because I just don't know what's driving these characters, where I'm supposed to be following them. And I think that needs to happen a little bit earlier on. Thank you. No, that really helps. Sometimes when you're writing in the basement and you don't have feedback every day, you're like, move it up. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And and I think a lot of people talk about, you know, starting in action, right? But -hmm. I think there's a difference between... For some reason, I always think of it as like a volcano, right? So pages one through 10, you don't want to have the volcano actually exploding and everyone dies. You want to have people (laughs) being like, guys, the volcano's going to explode and everyone might die. Sorry, I don't know why I'm thinking in volcanoes. And if a volcano thing happens tomorrow, I'm really sorry. But... um, But yeah, I think it, I think it's like building that tension and kind of setting the expectations mm-hmm. right, and so just Deb- pr- promising something will happen, basically. <laughs> uh, so Deborah, did you want to ask your question? Thank you. Hi, Haley. Hi. I wanted I wanted to ask. So if if you've sent out, you've had uh, agents request the whole manuscript or a few chapters this time of year. First of all, how how long do they usually take to get back to you? Because um, I know a couple of them say in their general queries, two weeks. And one even said, if you don't hear back from us in two weeks, then just move on. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess the other part of the question is, when they actually request things from you, should, should, will they likely get back to you and tell you like, you know, here you've sent chapters or a manuscript, will they typically get back to you because you're a little bit further in the process with them? Yes, I would say that in my opinion, you should definitely hear back a yes or a no if you've actually sent in chapters or a full manuscript for an agent to see. However, it takes a lot longer to go through manuscripts, Mm -hmm. particularly Mm -hmm. this week. I think I've requested like four and I'm probably going to get through one and a half of those every week on top of everything else that I'm doing. So I would definitely give a wider window. If you want to follow up, I don't think it hurts because again, you never know what gets buried in an inbox, but I would give it maybe even double that time, a month, a month and a half before you really start to worry. Because if we have five manuscripts on our desks and we're helping clients, we already have edit their manuscripts and we have meetings and we have an influx of queries. It just, things sort of fall a little further down the priority list. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing to keep in mind is that everything is taking so long this year for us too. I mean, I don't know if you've seen this with your agency, Haley, but like, man, I sent out so many things that I have not heard back on yet. Things might get a little bit easier mentally for everybody later in the year too. So I think you can assume that a lot of people have just kind of been expending some energy on what's happening in the world this year and therefore everything's been slower. So don't feel like you've lost your chance. Okay. Thank you so much, both of you. Yeah. I'm sorry the wait is so hard. I know it is difficult. Oh, definitely. You know, if I know that it's going to, if I just know that, that helps. And then you just Mm -hmm. go write other stuff. So. Yeah. And I think for something requested, I think it's reasonable to expect a response in three months in an ideal world, but it might be more this year. And it's okay to check in. If you check in every three months, I think you're totally okay. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Um, if anyone needs a template for how to check in, um, would that be helpful? Yes. Okay. All right. So if you say, dear agent name, Mr. Ms. Mix, I'm writing to check in on title of manuscript, which I sent on date. I know the world is chaotic right now or something else that acknowledges the situation. Um, I hope you're doing well in all of this. And I look forward to hearing from you. 
your name. That's all you need to do. And send it in the same email thread as your manuscript. So they can be like, oh, that one. Yes, I remember it. If they reply to you saying something like, great, can't wait, they'll scroll down and they'll see that and be like, yeah, still can't wait. Awesome. Here we go. So if you show them their previous enthusiasm, that really, really helps too. Virginia, would you like to ask your question? One book that's been written within the last five years that I think I can list as my comp, and it's written by Jacqueline Woodson. Now, you know, that's pretty high bar, but that's the only one that I can find. And so I'm wondering, uh, am I hamstringing myself by putting that one and only that one on as a comp? Um, I don't know if I would say you're hamstringing yourself by doing that, because I do think part of the value in comps, if you truly feel like it's a good comparison and you're not throwing it in because nothing else maybe works, is seeing that you know your book is marketable because books like it have been marketable. So I think in that it's it's a little bit easier to have a second comp that's maybe a little bit less well-known, but it's be- it's much better to be accurate than it is to try to hunt for the right level of fame from the authors that you're comping. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and um, we have a comps class in the library. I can send it to you after if you like. But it's so that would be in the business section of the classroom if anyone is looking for it. It's a wonderful comps class. But Virginia, if you can, maybe choose another comp that goes with it that is from a somewhat smaller author, a little bit less known, something that just shows the contrast between the two. And I think that can help balance it out. You know, we have the rules of comps, right? Like past three years, a book, um, not too big, not too small. So if the other one that you use follows more of those rules and you put them together, I think that's a high enough comp accuracy score that I think it will be okay. The only other one that I've been able to find is 10 years old. Hmm. (laughs) God could go with it. Um, That's way too old, right? It depends on the book. If it's still iconic, I think that's okay. Okay. I want to hear from Carol again, actually. She has a question about uh, losing them the five, the first five to 10 pages. So Carol, did you want to talk about that? Sure. Uh, can you guys hear me? Yep. Okay. For the concept, I, I get requests based on my query and I send the first five or 10 pages, sometimes a synopsis. And I have gotten feedback that I'm starting the story in the wrong place. First, I started literally with the action. Then I, when I got that feedback, I went back and added a chapter before, and it seems like that chapter is losing them. So I don't know, how do I start in the right place? Hmm. What's the chapter after your first one? Literally starting with the action, a car wreck that kind of sets everything off. I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't seen it, but I think that might possibly work. I think generally when people start in the wrong place, it's because they've got a bit of scene setting and throat clearing. Um, Haley, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's true. I, I try to be more specific in feedback than that. But typically, if I say you're starting in the wrong place, I do mean you're starting too far away from the action. So I don't think starting with a car wreck is a bad thing. But it's possible that in those pages, you're not managing to also give us a little bit about still those characters, why we're supposed to continue to follow them after this really big event. And that's a really tricky balance to strike between action and characterization and scene setting all at once. 
but that might that might be part of it we also we need to know why we're following this character further and so if we don't know them after 10 pages it's a lot harder to want to keep going that makes sense ross would you like to ask your question hey ross (laughs) welcome thank you thank you hi valentina thanks for that great tour a couple of weeks ago oh you're welcome thank you (laughs) so about 15 years ago i vanity published something and since I have a lot of cousins, it sold in the high um, high double figures. But a lot of the a lot of the queries and forms that you fill out ask if you've published something before. And I'm wondering a if this is relevant, and b should it be relevant since I take a few things out of the previous one, nothing major, but just there's a few points that I like that I kept in the in the new whip that I'm working on don't want to be seen as deceiving somebody or hiding something, but at the same point, I don't want it to distract from anything I'm doing going forward. Does that question make sense? About revealing it? Because a lot of agents ask, have you done anything in the past? So would you say that most of your sales were to friends and family? Absolutely. Okay. So I can think of a workaround. Haley, are you okay with me jumping in here? I don't mean to be rude. Okay. So Ross, I think a workaround would be to explain that you self-published something for your friends and family. And then therefore you are a hundred percent honest in saying that you self-published something for your friends and family. They know that you published, but they knew that your expectations were not the same as a large book that would, you know, ideally hit the bestseller list. And so they're not going to look at your track in the same way if you okay. created something that was specifically for that audience. Well, it's, it's sort of splitting hairs a bit. And it wasn't self-published. It was one of those vanity things where you send oh. it in and they pretty much take anything you send them. But I, I think that it really depends on your expectations because, for example, I know people who have published things that are basically their own memoirs that are for their friends and family. And mm-hmm. I don't think that any publisher should ethically go to that and say, oh, well, you didn't sell 10,000 copies. So I don't know about your track record as an author. That seems bad to me. It's not fair because it's two different things, right? So I think if your expectation was that it would mostly be for people that you know, that's very different than, you know, this is going to be a book that's going to be on the Kindle top 100. Um, Haley, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's fair because part of it is, asking if you pub something before is because typically you got to go back and look at your sales and see if it did well, see how you promoted it, learn those types of things. So I think that's a really great workaround. I also wonder, is it something that's still available? Should people want to buy it? Or is it something that's since been like pulled off the shelves? That I don't know. I've been afraid to look. I don't think the publisher is still in business, so probably not. Mm-hmm. I have a few yeah. in my study if you want to buy some. Well, that might be something worth saying too, saying that the publisher went out of business or saying that the rights have reverted back to you so that Mm -hmm. it's not something that a publisher or an agent would have to worry about. Okay. It's not not the same story. It's just a few few things were, you know, I stole from it, so to speak. I just don't know if it's even worth mentioning, but I don't want to be seen as... I think it's... I I would appreciate the honesty. And if I, if I knew that that you had not had the same expectations as, you know, it's not like you self-published a novel that you were hoping would be on the bestseller list. That's very, very different than, you know, self or or independently publishing something that, um, you know, was mostly for people, you know, I think that the level of expectation there is very, very different. And I think anyone can understand that, you know, sometimes families 
do things just, you know, as keepsakes. Like I have recipe books from family members, things like that. So, right. you know, okay. lovely self-published versions, but technically they have self-published. So Julie's here. Julie, do you want to say hi? Oh my gosh, you guys. Sorry to miss it. Thank you for being me, Valentina, taking over. So good oh, seeing well. you all. Yes, my son um, finished his Eagle Scout last year and there was a pandemic and they did this amazing, like beautiful ceremony in this big greenhouse tonight. It was like 27 degrees, but it was just really <laughs> lovely. And there were speeches and everything else. But I was thinking of you all and it looks like it's just going really well. So glad to be here. <laughs> hey, so I finished this book and I've been using the holidays to kind of do some reading and I've been reading it all the science fiction that's been recently published. And none of them are, are really remotely like mine. In fact, I realized I could have written my book, if I started from scratch, I could have written it more as a fantasy because from a style point of view and character arc and everything, it really feels more as a fantasy story that's set in a sci-fi setting versus a true or a typical sci-fi that's dystopian or hard tech or aliens or any of those things. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are on things that are like that, this, that would, that's typically like a sci-fi gender, but kind of stylistically is more of a fantasy gender and how that would fit like it's in comp. So I don't want this to be just totally a comp kind of a question, but more of a just a, how these, these genders mash together kind of a question and how much of that's a problem or how much of that's a good thing. Can you talk at all about why you think your character arc wouldn't fit in a sci-fi book? Well, it is sci-fi in the future, and it has space travel and that sort of stuff, but the plot is much more of a character internalization and a struggle than technology. I mean, I mentioned technology, you know, but I don't really go into technology. The society is somewhat dystopian, but not any more dystopian than society is right now. So... <laughs> You know, the typical attributes that we seem to see as far as sci-fi is not really present in the book. Like I said, you could just as easily pull this out, call her a super ability that's now established as a science from a scientific point of view and just call it magic and put it on a ship going from island to island and you'd have the same story and everything would work. And then it'd be a fantasy versus a sci-fi. So the sci-fi is really more just a setting. So I personally, I think sci-fi is partly about the setting, even if you aren't touching on a whole lot of the details behind the technology or anything like that. I would still try to comp a little more sci-fi um, instead of fantasy, because I, there's just such different expectations in the genre. And to if it were me as an agent, the story inside of the setting doesn't feel like it belongs in a genre. It's the setting around it that makes it sci-fi. I don't know if that's true for everybody else, but that's how I would feel if it came across my desk. And the rules of how the world works and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you, sometimes if you struggle with comps, one of the things I've seen done, even in pitch letters from agents to editors is to say it has the world building of this book and the voice of this book or Mm -hmm this character is similar, you know, like the characterization is similar to this story. So you can sort of break it down like that and see if there's a world that feels similar and then a character arc that feels similar and mash those two comps together. 
Yeah, I might even recommend that your second comp, which is about your characters, is not sci-fi at all, just because then it'll be very clear where the two intersect, and it might be less confusing than if you use fantasy. So one sci-fi, one contemporary, something like that. Okay, great. That's, mm-hmm. that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Haley, what is your number one tip for writers? Honestly, I think it is things like this. I think going to workshops and panels and Q&As with published authors, I was literally at one earlier <laughs> this evening. Um, it was a couple of YA bestselling authors. And so I just nice. like, jumped on and listened to them talk. But finding ways to learn as much as you can about the industry that you're trying to get into, because I don't think that's something that's super well taught. Um, I was a creative writing major and nobody taught, I had to go to things like the Publishing Institute to learn about the world that I was trying to get into. So I think attending panels and hearing from professionals and hearing from successful authors can make a really big difference in how you start to approach agents and other writers and sort of get your foot in the door. Because if you're querying from a place of, I wrote this book and I think it should be published, there's so much else that goes into it and you can't cater what you've created to these industry professionals as well if you haven't spent time hearing from them and hearing what they expect and being even part of a critique group with other authors who have tried and queried and and that kind of thing. And listening to this podcast counts too. It does. Definitely. (laughs) There's so much information in this podcast. It's incredible. I think that sometimes you just need to hear enough hours of people talking about something and you can absorb it through osmosis. You know, even if right now you are folding laundry or making dinner or cleaning the kitchen floor, you're probably still absorbing the things that you absolutely need from this too. And I think that on some level, someday someone will ask you a question about publishing and you'll be surprised to know that you know the answer. Just if you have this as your background noise, if you hear people talk about this, I think you're absorbing a lot more than just the exact words people say. I think you're also absorbing kind of what people are thinking about and the considerations they have and why Haley is answering questions the way she is. It's because of, you know, her experience and her thought. And there's a lot more than this is the correct answer. There's a lot of nuance there. So Haley, I have a question. What would you do in an alternate universe with no publishing? I would be very sad. (laughs) <laughs> I would be very bored. Um, but there was a while there in school where, first of all, I still feel like there's a stigma around getting an English degree or a liberal arts degree that shouldn't be there. But as somebody who loved English, I didn't think that was a great career path because what do you do with an English degree? So for a minute there, I was really considering going into forestry and sort of doing like a park ranger, like a national parks conservation type of thing. Because as much as I hate being like sweaty and hot and humid like it is here in Kansas, I love being out in nature and having things be a little more quiet and getting to really pay attention to those sort of things. So I think I would try to do something with that nature bent or like a wildlife photographer, be around animals, travel a little bit, mostly be by myself. (laughs) That's the stuff. Haley, I love that so much. I have this strong, and hey Haley, I'm sorry I'm late. (laughs) Um, I have this strong, like I'm starting to get obsessed by like the nature of creativity. Like, like, and like a huge part of it is like what creates story and what creates inspiration. And I think there's really something that if you can like activate writing and then go into the woods or go into, go to the beach or whatever, we're lucky here in Maine because we have both. 
And then, and then like something magical happens. So I'm so excited. You're the first one of our guests that ever said that, you know, that, but I do think there's something really there, you know, I don't know if anyone else has an experience where the nature creativity, you know, kind of dichotomy works for you or not. If anyone wants to tell a story of that. Allison. Hi. Hi everybody. Hey. I um, I'm Allison. I live in Maryland on a tributary that feeds the Chesapeake Bay. And my our yard is sort of woody, woodsy, and it's at the head of a, a cove that leads to a creek, that leads to a river, that leads to the bay. So, you know, twice a day, the tide goes in and the tide goes out. And the little creek in front of our house um, empties out it goes all the way down to you know the riverbed and you can see the trickle of the street of the spring that feeds the river that never stops it is the most amazing thing and of course you can see all the muck and stuff and you can Mm -hmm. see where the oysters and the barnacles are trying to breed and it is just sitting there and kind of having a moment of watching the trees hang over the water and imagining what life was like 50 years ago and 100 years ago when this land and the people in it were still um, were still like us, but had, you know, different value system, different beliefs. It's it really feeds me. Mm-hmm. And but it does require that I just sort of clean out the junk, you know, like. <laughs> I love that metaphor of, of, you know, that coming in and going out and that's, that's so much like what, what this writing process is, right. It's, mm. it's getting it down. It's letting it flow. It's like getting rid of it. <laughs> it is. It really feels like getting rid of it, Yeah, you know, and just like sometimes just pick up sticks or, you know, rake a little bit or there's, when you live in the woods, there's always like random branches that are threatening to kill you if you don't. <laughs> Gosh, that's amazing. I know it's it's just exciting to me. Thank you, Haley. Thank you, Allison, for that. Um, Allison, speaking of looking forward and backward in time, would you like to ask your question about Mm. future publishing? Oh, yeah, yeah. I I have a one of the writers in the Manuscript Academy is a friend, and her agent has postponed sending out her manuscript because he thinks that, you know, perhaps it's not the right time. Although, you know, publishers, editors are, I'm sure they're thinking like, I have to have something to sell in 2022, especially because this particular writer's content is going to be very timely in 2022. So I was just wondering, Haley, if you could talk about, you know, the fact that publishing doesn't take a break, but maybe people need a a beat (laughs) to rest. (laughs) I mean, because I'm sure you're inundated with publish, you know, with editors saying, I'm still looking, but I'm going to be not reading things on the weekends or something. I don't know. I haven't gotten a lot of those notes. Have you gotten a lot of those notes, Haley? (laughs) (laughs) No, the only break I can think of that happens in publishing is this sort of holiday break where because people are trying to clear out their desks for Mm -hmm. the start of the new year, they try not to take on 
a whole lot of new things. Editors in particular, they will pay attention to what's already with them instead of wanting a bunch of new pitches to come their way. I haven't heard anything about people waiting on books to try to get it out in a certain year, though. I would wait on pandemic books and dystopias and books that are painful to read and books that make you feel tired like 2020 makes you feel tired. I think that people are really, and yeah, I mean, the world hopefully will be very different in 2022, right? We can all hope for that. We have some good signs, Um, but it's kind of like starlight, right? You know, by the time it reaches you, the star itself is doing something totally different. And we're doing something now that's going to shine onto the bookshelves in 2020 or 2022. But, you know, we have to keep in mind how editors are feeling right now too. So I think that's going to affect it so that in 2022, we're going to have a lot more escapism for example. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, because I'm sure there are some people who are saying, I want those pandemic books, because it's escapism somehow, you know, you never know how someone's going to read something, you know, sometimes it's like, it's timely. So therefore, we can't do it, because I'm tired of thinking about this, or, wow, of course, we should buy this, everyone's thinking about this, you know, the same thing can, can be interpreted so many different ways. But yeah, I think, I think there are certain things that I would wait on, Um, if I were representing them now. But yeah, I suspect that the things people are wanting are those escape from 2020 vibes right now. But I mean, we don't don't know for sure. Yeah, I've been surprised to see how many new deals have Mm -hmm. been announced in publishers marketplace that are all pandemic related. Right. It's surprising to me too researchers coming out of the woodwork and slicing <laughs> and dicing perspectives and like and the the publication you know the the slated they're crashing them right launch is like they're crashing the mm-hmm. the timelines like out tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> hit upload call it good <laughs> Yeah, there's always going to be some of that. And I think that, you know, I think we'd all be happy to see a wonderful, thoughtful book by Dr. Fauci right now. But, you know, there are only so many of him in the world at present. I think it's just, there's always that double-edged, like, I'm hearing a lot about this in the news, therefore I don't want any more of it. Or I'm hearing a lot about this in the news, therefore it is timely. We must have it now. So, yeah. Um, And if anyone is curious, crashing a book means just getting it out as fast as possible. It's done for things like political books before elections. It's funny. I didn't know what you were talking about. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, I it's like the stock market. A analogy. No, 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 no. That's yeah, what they actually say. They say market. crashing a book. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> we all learned something. Yeah. Yes. We're, we're here to be educational <laughs> as well. So I, um, I, I like this question from Helen. Haley, I hope this isn't, an, <laughs> this seems rude, brought a little bit, but Congratulations on your newest job, first of all. So the reason I'm asking you this specifically is because as a new writer who's never been published um, in novel form before, I am. I would love to, pub- to work with a kind of a newer agent so we could kind of be in this together. But there's also a little bit of concern that an that new agents might not have as many connections. And so I'm wondering if there, if you have mentors, if there's mentors within the agency or editing connections, I, I think yours is a little different because you worked in publishing before, even though it was magazine, but is there something that 
we as writers who are pitching to newer agents could take comfort in knowing that this this can work really well for us. We don't have to go to somebody with 20 years experience. Yes, I think that is totally fair. It's not rude at all. Um, <laughs> I Yes, yeah, so a big part of publishing, I think a lot of people do start as some sort of intern or at very entry-level positions. So most people do have some sort of guide or experience or mentor on their way up. So for me, I was an intern at a couple different places for like eight or 10 months this year. So I have all of that, but I definitely, the reason people are titled as associate agents or junior agents or whatever else is because that is sort of the running scale. So as a junior agent, that means that those upper agents are looking out for me. So a lot of what I do sort of goes through, like I said, I work with Paige Wheeler and she's the one who has decades of industry experience and a ton of authors she signed and a ton of titles she's worked with. So not only does she have like documents detailing some like editors and the genres they look for that we can check out, but before I pitch a book to editors, she'll read that pitch letter. And before I officially decide to sign an author, she'll read that manuscript too and just be like, okay, here's what you might want to keep in mind or ask. But most of what I do is sort of at this point, just briefly double check. So I'm still the one choosing my authors and my projects. And then it's just sort of like glanced at and checked off and then we move forward. So I think that's true of most publishing jobs. There's usually a mentor for somebody new so that they can really get their feet in the water. And because we definitely do want authors to feel like they're getting the best possible deal out of their agents. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> and I think I think Haley's kind of the best of all possible worlds because she has the time to put in editorially, but she also has the guidance of somebody who's knows everybody and who's a big deal. And, um, you know, senior agents aren't going to let their agencies look bad in case somebody younger doesn't know a rule or something. And there are many many rules, of course. <laughs> uh, so I, I mean, you can absolutely trust that um, someone who's newer at a, a well-established agency is going to get that guidance because it reflects on everybody if something goes wrong. Okay. Yeah. That's what I figured, but I think it's also great to, you know, I believe that when people are first doing it, like, like you and others that you really want to, you know, do great putting in 150%. Like you said, you're working way too many hours, by the way, take a nap (laughs) (laughs) or something. But yeah, so thank you for that. That's, that's good to know. I I assumed, but it's good to hear it. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm also going to mention newer agents like me are the ones who are going to be maybe requesting more materials than they need and really seeing potential out of things because agents like Paige already have so many clients that when they take something on, it has to be like the single thing that really spoke to them maybe that year or that six months. Whereas I still want the project that really moves me and speaks to me and the author I really want to work with, but I'm seeking that and I I need to find those people. Whereas other agents can sit a little more comfortably and really just take on like that one singular perfect thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You need to build the whole list. Mm-hmm. So you're looking for someone in each of the genres that you represent. And, <laughs> exactly. And um, and Helen, you know, she's going to have help with the list too. You know, when I was starting out, I ha- I was lucky enough to have other agents help me too. And I still have a napkin that I was a drinks, 
with an agent who um, is very, very well known now. And so I'm a bit reverse starstruck knowing this. Um, at the time, she was a bit more down to earth. And um, I still have a napkin of editors she suggested for a project I was working on. So people want to be helpful. It's it's not seen as like, oh, you're also sending out YA. Well, therefore I hate you. You know, it's not like that at all. <laughs> okay, so. great. Well, thank you so much. That was a great answer from everybody. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Ellen. So Haley, um, I have a question. What's something you've changed your mind about since you've been in the industry? Yeah, definitely. So uh, I have had this total 180 about nonfiction books. I went from, I think I've read like two memoirs ever <laughs> to um, not only reading them a whole lot this year, but like actively wanting to represent them. I'm such a fiction fantasy person that whenever I would get into a nonfiction, I couldn't sit down and just like read and read and read it the way I could fiction. So I would just sort of give up on them. And now I'm like, okay, but if you take it in chunks at a time, if I'm like, I'm dedicated to reading three chapters today, I will go through them so quickly because I still have like a fairly academic mind. And like, I sort of miss class discussions on literature and all those things. And in nonfiction, I feel like I'm still, I'm still learning, but I'm also still doing like sitting down and reading and doing the thing I love. So I just kind of the breadth of that genre has uh, started to like really intrigue me. And I'm reading and rule. I'm reading anti-racist literature. I'm reading memoirs. I'm, I have like this whole shelf of nonfiction uh, by me. <laughs> Whereas before I had like, honestly, like two. So that's been really exciting. And it's really fun to see those come in and just, again, see the variety of nonfiction that people are working on and that I can learn from. That's awesome. That's Yay. awesome. <laughs> Haley, thank you so much. Yeah. I'm so happy you were able to make time. I'm so happy everyone here was able to make time. Thank you so much. I know it's such a busy time of year. Haley, do you want to tell us where we can find you online and if you're currently open for queries? Sure. I am 100% open for queries, not closing anytime soon. So yeah, please send me your things and you can mention that you saw me here. That'd be great. I love a little connection. I am most active on Twitter, definitely. So it's at Haley underscore J underscore Casey. It's the same thing on Instagram, but I'm very new to that website. So I don't post on there a whole lot. And then of course you can find me on Manuscript Wishlist and on the cmalit.com, which is our company website. Great. Well, Yay, I'm you. sure you're gonna have lots of queries in your inbox with your great energy. So thank you very much. <laughs> really course. appreciate it. Oh, um, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it's awesome. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.